0: As I read from the Gospel of Mark in chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say but say whatever is given you in that hour for it is not you who speak but it is the holy spirit Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child and have them and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death you will be hated by all because of my name but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, thank you, Zach and Becca, once again. There's something wonderfully enheartening about worship. Um, in the fourth century, Augustine's spiritual father, a man named Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, um, the Roman emperor was going to install a heretic in the pulpit of a church. And in protest, the church gathered and would not yield the space to someone who would not worship the triune God of Scripture. And so the unrelenting emperor sent his troops to surround the cathedral. And things were not boding well for the Christians. And so they rallied around and prayed the night through and praised God throughout. And at the end of the day, the emperor's forces did not march in. And this, is this idea of these assembled saints here in a brave task with no arms but their God and encouraging themselves with the praise of the Lord that eventually turned away the soldiers. I just had that wonderful image singing that, so thank you all for that. <laughs> On Friday, the Denton City Council did issue its seventh COVID announcement and Governor Abbott also his 28th executive order, effective through August 31st. Face coverings are required except when they interfere with the performance of a service, which in here would mean preaching, teaching, or singing. And so, again, when we are doing something that is part of the performance of a service and studies have been done, Becca and I have examined several of them, and singing actually is a safe exercise as long as you're not doing it directly into the face of the person in front of you. So if it's burdensome to sing, feel free to remove it for that time or if due to lung issues or something else, that it's difficulty breathing. Uh, We're going to continue to practice good hygiene and social distancing. Citizens are encouraged, say in residence, and at-risk groups discouraged from joining public gatherings. What this means for Dini Community Church is we are going to continue meeting on Sundays and Thursdays so long as we're able. Uh, In doing so, we're going to observe what our governing authorities require of us, uh, I've heard from two different sources that there are some special exceptions for churches. Uh, if I can see that in a document from a government source, no one would rather have us lead the removing of the veils than myself. So, but we're still figuring out what some of these things are, and then some of these are city localities. So Rod Brown sent me something from Tarrant County that was a little bit looser than City of Denton. But again, we'll flex and learn as we understand the instructions or find new information. Uh, For the women's gatherings and the Bible studies, if it's in a church building, there is no capacity limit. So religious services are exempt so long as we can maintain the social distancing. However, inside of a home, for example, with the women's Bible studies, there's still 10 or more supposed to. So if we get a large sign up, we're free to gather in the church. Or if it's a smaller gathering, then we'll just maintain the distancing as we need to. We will not be offering children's classes for the present time. We are postponing our Thursday night Denia family fun nights and doing those in September, October versus July won't be altogether terrible. Uh, we will continue to be posting our Sunday services and we hope to be live streaming because watching a YouTube video is not the same as being able to participate in some sense. And so we hope to have that up and going by next week. And then we are trying to take additional safety measures. Uh, we were hoping to have two external thermometer checks, and hope to have those, again, just to be added security. And then also, if you notice the signs on the door, a company called Texas Health and Shield was in here this week, fog bombing every space in the building to completely remove all germs. And also then a coating was applied on every seat and surface that makes it more difficult for a bacteria or virus to remain on, and that endures for three months. And so thank you to the congregant that made that available to us. So we are wanting to be as safe as possible. We're wanting to honor our governing authorities while also being able to gather and worship and do this as best we can. So we're figuring it out. Thank you for your patience, your prayers. Again, if you hear things and can forward a reliable source of information, we're happy to adapt as we can. In the meanwhile, I would encourage you to sign up for WhatsApp, which is the primary way that we communicate. And there's people here who can help you do that if you're not already on. Let's continue to support one another. You know, the idea of going back in residence is an emotionally daunting prospect for some. You know, even just being around and only seeing masked faces. I was trying to guess identities by eyebrows. And even that's a frustrating exercise. Uh, The unibrows are easier, so thank you all for that. (laughs) (laughs) We'll continue to look for ways to love those around us. Um, If there's a concern, a need a request an idea feel free to contact your elders and then we'll continue to pray and we'll thank God for his mercies we'll praise him for His sovereignty and we'll ask for his mercy in soon lifting these circumstances that we find ourselves in so would you join me in prayer now dear Heavenly Father we do thank you that you are the sovereign God we thank you that you are the creator of the heavens and the earth that there is not one molecule in all the galaxies of this universe that is not under your sovereign control. There is not an electron spinning around a proton that you are not sovereignly over. And so, Lord, we thank you for that comfort, that you are almighty and you are good, and that gives us comfort in all circumstances. We do pray for your special mercy on those who are already laboring under health issues, and this makes it more difficult, more frightening. Father, we pray for those needing to get in to see physicians, that you would give them uh, access that they need. Lord, for those on the front line caring for people, we do pray for special protection and wisdom and discernment. Father, we pray for uh, wisdom and discernment of what it is to navigate, how to honor our governing authorities, but also not do things that are unnecessary, how to love those, whose convictions is that everybody should be in a mask, how to not judge those who view a mask as a sign of fear, not faith. Lord, in all honesty, the bigger threat to this church than COVID is a judgmentalism, a self-righteousness, that we begin to look at each other differently because of different convictions that we have. So keep us united, keep us loving, keep us considerate. And let us shine brightly for you, that as the days grow dark on numbers' fronts, now, we do pray that we would, like a city set on a hill, do good deeds so that people would see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven and come to know the Savior. So, Lord, we do lift up these things and our time to you this morning, in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, as part of the new COVID nineteen order, uh, by Wednesday eleven fifty nine p.m., every public and nonprofit institution has to have in place a health and safety policy. And the document goes into detail of this is the current crisis, this is the coming crises, and therefore here's what's required of you in light of where we are and where we appear to be going. And so we'll submit that and post that as required. But in Mark chapter 13, Jesus does something similar. He's going to describe the current and the coming crises and then give directions as to what our response should be that continues to this present day. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, where we are going to see in chapter 13, Christ's crisis plan for his disciples. Chapter 13 is known as the Olivet Discourse because it's given on the Mount of Olives. It's the longest teaching block in the Gospel of Mark. In Matthew, it actually contains two full chapters. So there's a massive amount of material here. We're going to be doing this in two weeks. The first 13 verses are going to be leading us up to the time when Jesus moves into a forward time. And in our text this morning, we're going to see the context of the crisis. Then the characteristics of the crisis. And then the conduct that Christ requires of us in the midst of the present and the coming crisis. The context of the crisis beginning in verse 1. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. So Jesus had visited the temple on Sunday after the triumphal entry. Then he had cleansed the outer court of the Gentiles in the temple on Monday. And then on Tuesday he had returned and he had been confronted by various groups of religious and political authorities, thwarting them all. Then he had identified the two foremost commandments. He had alluded to his divine lordship. How can David say to his Lord, the Lord said to my Lord? And then he warned against the vanity and the worldliness of the scribes, lifted up the model worshiper in the poor widow who gave what she possessed. And then now departing the temple, one of the disciples says, look at those amazing stones, look at these amazing buildings. And they were absolutely amazing. So Josephus, who was a Jewish historian who lived at the time, had visited the temple, said that some of the stones were 40 feet long, 18 feet wide, and 12 feet high. These things were enormous. They were massive. The, the area itself covered by the temple was 35 acres, which is approximately 12 football fields. It was likely the largest structure in the ancient world. And not only was it massive, it was glorious. Here's his description. The outward face of the temple in its front, lacked nothing that was, light, that was likely to surprise men's minds or their eyes, for it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight, and at the first rising of the sun reflected back a very fiery splendor, and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away just like they would the sun. So much of the surface was burnished with gold plating, and when the sun struck it, it was too brilliant to look at, but to to strangers, the temple appeared when they were at a distance like a mountain covered with snow. For those part which were not gilt with gold plate were exceedingly white. So from a distance, it looked like a snow-capped mountain peak. And then as you came closer, the gold came to the fore and the reflection of the sun. This was brilliant. This was glorious. This was massive. This was without question the largest temple in the ancient world and very likely the largest structure in the ancient world. And the disciple... Maybe one of the fishermen from a small fishing village said, these are amazing. But Jesus, being God, does not see as man sees. He looks not at the exterior, but at the interior. And he looks not at the present, but at the future. And so he says, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now this would have been inconceivable One, because who could have disassembled? Who could have devastated, demolished such a structure? And why would God allow this? Surely God would never permit this to happen, which is a caution to us because whenever we say, surely God would not, we're reminded that God is holy enough and just enough to do some staggering things. Surely God wouldn't destroy the temple, except he did three times. Surely God wouldn't allow Israel to be taken captive, but it was multiple times. Surely God wouldn't uh, evict the Hebrews from the Holy Land, but He did. Surely God wouldn't scatter the languages and the nations at Babel, but He did. Surely God wouldn't flood the whole earth, but He did. Surely God wouldn't evict Adam and Eve for just one sin, but He did. Surely God wouldn't sentence sinners to hell, just for not being perfect, but he does. And God is holier than we can imagine. And God has a long track record of dealing with unrighteousness. And there comes a time with no matter how glorious the temple, what God cares about is what's going on inside. And so we look at, look at that staggering courthouse, but God says, is justice being done inside? Look at that amazing Capitol building. But are righteous laws being passed? Look at that beautiful university and school building. But what's being taught inside? Look at that mega church. Look at that cathedral. But is the gospel being taught? But is God's word being exalted? And so Jesus reminds us that God sees not as we sees. And God does judge sinful, unrighteous institutions. And no nation or institution is above that. Surely America would never fail and falter, but Greece and Rome and Babylon and Israel and countless others have before. The reality is there is no institution, there is no nation, there is no person, David or Solomon or anyone, that can thumb their nose at God and God not come down and judge it. And so Jesus warns them yes, the stones are big, yes, the temple's glorious, but you've just seen the wickedness and the corruption within. You've just seen the state of the religious authorities. And what I'm telling you is it's all coming down. And it did so 37 years later, when in 66 AD, the Israelis rebelled against the Romans. And then in conquering the rebellious city, Titus the general came in and burned the city to the ground and took the stones apart from one another so that now all that's left is the portion of the western wall known as the Wailing Wall. So Jesus does know the future and Jesus did know that judgment was coming and Jesus warned them, don't be impressed, be concerned. Because our God is a holy God. God says three times in the Old Testament, I am about to do such a thing as will make their ears tingle. (laughs) And God is free to do that because He is God. And so now in this context, they leave the temple, they cross the Kidron Valley, and they go to the Mount of Olives where Jesus picks up a private conversation with His first four disciples. Verses 3 and 4. As He was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning Him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? So the smaller group of these four fishermen, these two pairs of brothers from Capernaum, who were there from the very beginning of Jesus' Galilee public ministry, ask him two questions. When and how will we know? Now the first question Jesus doesn't answer, then or ever. So it's interesting, the last question we have from the apostles in the book of Acts before Jesus' ascension is... Is it now that you're coming in your kingdom? And so when they had one last shot, tell us when. And Jesus said, it's not for you to know days or seasons or times, but you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the outermost parts of the earth. Don't worry about when I'm coming back. You be about the Father's business when I come. Worry about being faithful. Don't worry about when I'm coming back. The second question, what is the significant sign that will make it clear to everyone that the end time is approaching, well, he's going to address that in verse 14 and beyond. And so we're going to see the abomination of desolation and a tribulation period and the coming of the Son of Man, and we'll get all that next week. But in between, we're going to get what is going to be happening before those final days. We're going to be getting the circumstances that are going to endure between the time of Christ's first coming and his second. What is life going to be like that aren't signs? Because these are false positives, so to speak. This is just the nature of human life in between the first and second coming of Christ that he's going to remind us of so that we don't fool ourselves that maybe the end is here prematurely. And so that we are encouraged and motivated and instructed to be faithful until that day comes. So we're going to read through verses 5 through 13 again, and then we're going to go through it in two ways. First, looking at the characteristics of this crisis and then unpacking our responses to it. So Jesus says, beginning in verse 5, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. These things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines, but these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand what you are to say, but whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is... Not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. So the first characteristic we see of this present age, because we're still living in it, is religious deceivers. Jesus says, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. Messiah and will mislead many. He's going to say later in the chapter, if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ. Behold, he's there. Don't believe him. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. So the first thing we're cautioned to be aware of is there are going to be false messiahs and there's over 50 that have appeared. Uh, Even in our own backyard in Waco, David Koresh, not that long ago, was there as a self-proclaimed Messiah gathering people in the Mount Zion Temple, or Mount Carmel. The Bible talks about false prophets, false apostles, false teachers, false disciples. There's going to be tares among the wheat, there's going to be people attempting to mislead, and one of the characteristics of the age is, there are those who are going to try to mislead, if possible, even God's children. The encouragement is that Jesus' sheep hear His voice and they will not follow another. But the caution to us is, There are going to be false teachers. There are going to be false prophets. There are going to be false messiahs. Don't be surprised, but do be aware and careful. Secondly, violent conflicts. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be frightened. These things must take place. But that is not yet the end, for nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There's been bloodshed on the earth ever since Cain killed Abel, and it's only multiplied. Uh, One of my favorite movies is called The Lion in Winter and Catherine Hepburn in her Academy Award winning role gives a famous monologue where she's talking to her sons and one of the boys draws a knife out to kill another son who wants to be king and he says, he's got a knife. She goes, we all have knives. We're barbarians in how plain we make it. It's 1183 and we carry wars within us like syphilis. Dead bodies rotting outside because dead bodies are, are uh, rotting inside. We are the origins of war. We are the origins of violence. And that's true. You see in infancy, babes starting to strike out at mom. And then when they get siblings, they love to pick on the little one. And then it continues to grow and grow until teenage years when it gets bolder, more public. And then we master it as adults. And the reality is there's always been violence and there always will be violence. So in New York City if you've ever gone to the United Nations as you walk across the street there's what's called the Isaiah wall because there is the quote of Isaiah 2:4 they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks nation shall not lift up sword against nation and neither shall they study war anymore and that day's coming but not yet and so when you hear of wars and rumors of war that's not the time to wonder is Messiah coming now? Because this side of his return, there's always going to be violence, unfortunately. Thirdly, there's going to be natural disasters, earthquakes in various places, famines. So already in 2020, we've had earthquakes, famines, volcano eruptions in the Philippines, brush fires in the Australian outback, floods in Dubai and Indonesia, locust plagues in Africa, pandemics around the world, and we're not even into the second half of the year. And the globe is covered in natural disasters. Uh, I've led a pretty sheltered life, but I was trying to think, Dad. I remember walking out into the eye of a hurricane in Louisiana. I remember being in a flood. I remember sitting on our porch in Nebraska and watching the tornadoes move down the way. Uh, We've also had insects of various kinds. We've had plagues. We've had fires. We've had floods. Natural disasters are part and parcel, unfortunately, of this fallen world. The birth plane, so to speak, until the new world comes, the new earth. Another characteristic in verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Christ was persecuted. His disciples were persecuted in the book of Acts. The Jews persecuted the early church before the Romans began persecuting the church. And there has always been persecution against Christians throughout history and never more so than today numerically. According to an organization called Open Door World Watch List that was formed by uh, Brother Andrew, who does uh, the smuggling of Bibles, there are currently 260 million Christians living in areas where there are high levels of religious persecution against Christians. So far in 2020, There have been 2,983 Christians killed for their faith. There have been 9,488 churches and other Christian buildings attacked and burned. There were 3,711 believers arrested, detained, or imprisoned without trial that we know of, and we're six months into the year. Persecution has always gone on against the church. If Christians chose to play the victim card, we've got a really strong one and we have for all of our history. But that also is just part and parcel of being a follower of Christ before his return. Another one is treachery and betrayal. The brother will betray brother to death and a father is child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. We can expect rejection by the world. Jesus says, you will be hated all because of my name. It says that the Son came and taught that the world's deeds were wicked, therefore the world hated the Son. And the world's going to hate the Son's followers because we speak truth. We believe in absolute right and wrong. We say that there's only one God. We say things that are unpopular and challenging and the world hates that. And so the world has always rejected that. And people have always been able to be treacherously betraying those who adhered to that. And so what are some of the implications of these characteristics of the age between the first and second coming of Christ? First, Deceit, violence, disasters, persecution, treachery, and rejection will persist until Christ returns. Uh, My wife sometimes will look at the paper and say, you know, I see all these terrible things happening, and every day the newspaper gets more depressing to read. But then I remind myself is, it's going to be like this, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. This is the nature of the times in which we live. And so it shouldn't shock us or daunt us. This is just the nature of the human condition until Christ comes back. Which reminds us again that our hope is not in this world, but the world to come. Ultimately, we're not going to be able to get enough Supreme Court justices, or the right political party, or the right president, or the right education system, or the right curriculum, or the right economy, or the right anything that is going to bring paradise on earth. Our hope is not in this world, but the world to come, because in this world, we're all sinners, and sinners mess up any institution you put us in. It doesn't matter how nice of a car you put me in, I'm gonna wreck it, because that's what sinners do. And so our hope is not in this world, but in the world to come. Thirdly, that Christians are not exempt from the suffering of this world. America isn't Goshen. (laughs) That the plagues happen out there, but not in the Bible Belt. We don't get to form a village and flee it. We don't get to form communes. We don't get to flee to the hills and form a little community. We're gonna be involved in this. We're not exempt from this. We're part and parcel of all this terrible stuff that's going around. Partly so that we can glorify and serve God with our suffering. So right now, those of you who know Nan Anderson, please pray for her. Nan is in her final days, likely. And she is showing us how to end well after having lived well. So pray for Nan, pray for John, but a beautiful saint is going home beautifully. Uh, Papa Mel has already slipped out, but Mel was married to Patty for 70? 70 years and three months. 70 years and three months as Mel's biographer. I'm buying that number. Uh, And... Patty, towards the end of days, you know, Patty was always frail. Mel still—he can out wrestle anybody here. But Patty was frail, and then her back began to stoop, and her bones began to break, and then her memory began to fade. And uh, towards the end, Patty would just hum hymns. The last thing to go in her memory was her hymns. And uh, I was there when Patty passed. The last words I heard her say was, "I love you, Daddy Mel." <laughs> and Mel showed us what it was to take care of a bride to the end and, and to love his wife even when others were saying "Mel, this is too much for you you need to put her where you can get some extra help and Mel never would let anyone else take care of his Patty and Mel and Patty showed us how to go through difficult challenges well and, and that's part of our job is to model for the world what it means to labor under chronic health conditions or economic trials or family conflict. That's part of our witness, that's part of our testimony, that's part of what gives us credibility to speak into the sorrows of others. That as we're comforted, we can offer that same comfort. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German leader of the underground church, came to America as the persecution was arising, but then he wrote Reinhold Niebuhr, another theologian, he said, after a couple of months, I made a mistake in ever coming to America, because if I do not suffer with my people during this great trial, I will have nothing to say to them after the trial. And he went back to Germany, and he was. He was arrested. He spent three years in uh, different concentration places. And then on April 9, 1945, he was hung, and his parents heard about his death on a BBC broadcast. But he knew, I need to be there with them. Just like Father Damien moved in with the lepers colony in Molokai in Hawaii and contracted leprosy. And just like Mother Teresa had to go and live in the slums of Calcutta to be among the poorest of the poor, if she was going to have anything to say to the poorest of the poor, just like Jesus left his father's throne above and emptied himself of all but love to save Adam's helpless race. And so we have been left here to suffer with the world for the sake of the world so that we can hopefully show the world the hope that we have in a Savior that will lead them to make him his Savior as well, their Savior as well. So there's a purpose for this. We have a role in this, which reminds us that our goal is to pursue faithfulness and not, as David mentioned last week, the American idols of security, comfort, or freedom. We're reminded regularly that those things don't last, that there's no guarantee of those things. Our job is to be faithful. Our job is to be about our Father's business. We wait for the joys to come, but in the meanwhile, we're faithful with what God has us to do. So what does that look like? Jesus goes on to explain what the conduct of a disciple should be during the crisis, meaning the time between his first and second coming. First, Jesus says, see to it that no one misleads you because people are going to try. Stick true, stick close to Scripture. Uh, Gird your loins with truth. It's the first part of putting on the armor of God so that we can stand firm against the devil. Paul says that I'm afraid that just as the the serpent deceived Eve with his craftiness, that you too will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And so knowing that there are false teachers and prophets and messiahs out there, our charge is to stay close to the truth, to stick to the Bible, to be Bereans. Did God indeed say? and to not move from it one iota in what we believe and what we practice and what we preach and proclaim. Secondly, Jesus gives the command, do not be frightened. This is in the context of there being wars and rumors of wars. How can you not be frightened when there are wicked men doing violence on the innocent and the weak? Because we know that God is sovereign, and we know where our hope ultimately lies. In 1736, John and Charles Wesley left England to go to the colony of Georgia to be missionaries. And on the way there, there was a storm, and the ship began to toss and turn. And then this is what John Wesley recorded on January 25, 1736, in his diary. There was a group of Moravians singing songs to God on the deck of the ship while the sailors and the passengers panicked. In the midst of the psalm, Where their service began, the sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship, poured in between the decks, as though the whole great deep of the ocean were swallowing us up. The English began screaming, but the Germans calmly sung on. Sam, that's for you. I asked one of them afterwards, were you not afraid? And the man said, I thank God, no. But were not your women and children afraid? And he replied mildly, no, our women and our children are not afraid to die. And that was one of the great witnesses of the Christians in the early centuries, that they would bring not just the bishops and the pastors and the leaders, but the elderly and the women and the children into the arena with lions and torture devices. And they were unyielding because they knew who their God was. And their confidence, their calm, their boldness, their audacity for Christ was a witness. So Jesus says, don't be fearful. Don't be frightened. Then he says, be on your guard, be vigilant. Yes, be innocent as doves, but yes, be wise as serpents because there are wicked people out there and you need to be on guard against them. So in my Bible in a year, I recently finished Nehemiah and as you know, Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king and he went back to supervise the rebuilding of the wall and the gates and they began to try to trick him. And so some people who were there who weren't true worshipers of Yahweh said, let us help. And Nehemiah said, no. And then they tried to trick him and trap him into saying, come meet with us. We know of a plot against your life. And he wouldn't fall into that trap. Then they said, people are seeking your life. Hide yourself in the temple, which would have been a death sentence for entering the Holy of Holies as a non-priest, and he wouldn't fall for it. And time after time, they try to trick him and deceive him and to daunt him and to distract him, and Nehemiah will have none of it. And at the end of the day, as they heard of potential attacks against the wall, it says that they had... A building implemented in one hand and a sword in the other. And Charles Spurgeon named his church's magazine, The Sword and the Trowel. Because that's what we do as we build God's church. We have a trowel to add new bricks and new layers. But we also have the sword of the word to keep us safe against God's enemies. And so we are ever vigilant. Fourthly, Jesus says that the gospel must first be preached to all nations which means we must be evangelizing at all times. And this isn't just the Jews, already he's telling the apostles, you're gonna go beyond Israel, you're gonna to go to all the nations, and yes, they're going to persecute you, and yes, they're going to imprison you, and yes, they're gonna put you on trial and flog you, and your job is to keep preaching the gospel anyway. So some of y'all know the name Richard Vermbrand, who was a Romanian pastor who was uh, in prison for 14 years, three of which in solitary confinement, uh, the subject of many gruesome tortures. He says, at times, I would look at the cup of water in my cell to remind me that I wasn't in hell because I knew there was no water in hell. (laughs) So as long as there's still a drop of moisture, I know that I'm not in hell because otherwise this is so hellish that I might think I was. And they would play this tape over and over again to the Christian prisoners. Communism is good. Christianity is finished. God is dead. Communism is good. Christianity is finished. God is dead. Constantly, constantly, constantly while you were up all night in a frozen box. And yet they preached to the prisoners. And when they were caught doing it and brought out and beaten, they came back and continued the preaching. And prisoners came to Christ. And guards came to Christ. And then through their witness, others came to Christ. And there is a beautiful work in Romania today because of the faithful and the saints in a hard time. We preach the gospel. Another lesson. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. In other words, we can rely on God to provide what's needed in the hour. If you remember in the book of Acts, when Peter and James and John were arrested by the Sanhedrin, and then they were brought in and were able to give this powerful, eloquent testimony. And the Sanhedrin, the scholars of Israel would say, These are uneducated, uneducated, untrained men. Where did they get this wisdom? Well, they got it from the Holy Spirit within them. And God enabled them to know what to say in that hour. Uh, I was in Romania teaching once and was talking to a pastor. And he talked about under communism that they would bring Bibles in their trunks and then certain areas they had gated off. And they had found ways to fling the Bibles into awaiting groups who would catch them and then bring the Bibles into those portions of Romania. And one time this person was was arrested for smuggling Bibles. And here was the fence, here was the guard, here was the Bible, and he was going to go to jail for a long time. And he said, God, I can't lie. What am I going to say? And so when they tried him and they said, you were smuggling Bibles, weren't, weren't you? And he said, I just asked the questions, how could I smuggle Bibles over there? Look at the fence. Look at me. Look at the guards. How could I have done that? And they said, yeah, how could he have done that? And they released him. Now, he didn't lie. (laughs) But this man, just in that moment when I didn't know what to say, God told me what to say, and it kept him in the ministry. And so God's going to provide the words we need or the grace we need or the perseverance we need in that hour, which is related to our sixth lesson. Jesus says, the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. In other words were commanded to endure, to persevere, to not yield, to not give up, or to give in. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian who was sentenced to the gulag and is the author of the Nobel Prize winning book, The Gulag Archipelago. And he talks in there about, there comes a moment when every prisoner faced with these life-threatening situations every day, has to make a decision. I will do whatever it takes to stay alive, even at the cost of my soul. I'll steal another prisoner's piece of bread. I'll steal another person's shoe or cloak when when they're not looking. I'll lie, I'll, I'll, I'll snitch, I'll do anything to stay alive. And maybe they prolong their life a little bit, but at the cost of who they are. But he said the better decision... It's in a chapter called Rise, is to say, I will not compromise my soul, and it doesn't matter what they do to my body. And then he says, you are rising. Now you're beginning to grow. Now you're beginning to experience the growth that can occur in hard circumstances because I will not give up my soul to prolong or to protect my body. Augustine, in the context of the Vandals, the German tribes taking over Rome, said... Do what they will to your body. They can't touch your soul. And the worst that they can do to your body just sends your soul home faster. So don't relent. Don't give in. Uh, The saying of the Texas Rangers was, maybe still is, you can't stop a good man in the right that keeps it coming. And that's right. You can't stop a good man in a right cause that keeps it coming, that won't quit. Winston Churchill put it this way. In a speech in 1941, surely what we've learned in this period of war is this lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in except on convictions of honor or good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Endure. We want deliverance maybe we would be able to accept a quick martyrdom, but most times what's called for is endurance. You persevere by God's grace. And we do this finally because we prioritize Christ over our life, our family, and this world. Uh, Everyone here has made sacrifices for something that they valued highly. Uh, Maybe it was athletics. And you were willing to abuse your body and to suffer injury and to go through all kinds of hardships because you wanted to excel on the athletic field. Now, Others have made great sacrifices academically or professionally or in other areas because I valued that and that was worth the sacrifice. And what the Bible calls us to, what the gospel calls us to, is prioritize Christ so that he's worth the hatred of the world, and the betrayal of families, and the persecution of governing authorities because Christ is worth it and that's what we're called to. So here is Christ's crisis plan for his disciples. The context is God's judgment on Israel and the destruction of the temple which then led the way to the establishment of the church and the expansion of the church as his disciples go out and preach the gospel to all the nations. And the characteristics of this crisis. What can we expect in this life? What are the false positives that we shouldn't be overly alarmed about? Religious deceivers, violent conflicts, natural disasters, persecution, treachery, betrayal, rejection. That's just what it is to live in between the first and second coming of Christ. We should expect it. How do we respond to it? Or, I'm sorry, what are some of the implications of this? That's just part of this world. It reminds us that our hope is not in this world, but the world to come that we are not exempt from Christians from suffering because the reality is we all have a prosperity gospel. We all assume that if I'm a good Christian, God will give me a spouse, give me a good marriage, give me children, give me healthy children, give me a good job, give me a home, give me a reasonable amount of comfort, security, and freedom. We just expect that and we know that because of how we respond when they're taken away from us. But we're not promised those things. We glorify and serve God with our suffering. And our focus is on pursuing faithfulness, not security, comfort, and freedom. And what this looks like, the imperatives in this passage are stick to Scripture. Stay true to the truth. Be brave. Be courageous. Uh, I was talking to someone this week about just the world we live in and the censorship and the shaming and the virtue virtue signaling, all of which is going to get much, much worse. And I said, Christians are going to have to be bolder and Christians are going to have to be braver. And we're just, we're not going to be hateful. We're not going to be obnoxious. We're not going to be ungodly, but we're not going to be sheep. And that's going to be hard. But that's okay. God will be gracious. Stay vigilant, preach the gospel, rely on God, endure, and prioritize Christ above all else. So this week I finished listening to an audio book called The Splendid and the Vile, which is a biography of Winston Churchill's first year as prime minister, which also coincided with the bombing of uh, London and the first main year of the war. And in a portion of that, on May 26, was the beginning of Operation Dynamo, which was the rescue operation to relieve the uh, British expeditionary force from Dunkirk to get them back into England so that Britain wouldn't lose its army. And on June 6th, Churchill spoke before the House of Commons, talking about the current situation, the future coming situation, and the response in the meanwhile. There never has been, I suppose, in all the world, in all history, such an opportunity for youth. The Knights of the Round Table, the Crusaders, all fall back into the past as prosaic. These young men going forth every morn to guard their native land and all that we stand for, holding in their hand these instruments of colossal and shattering power, of whom it may be said that every morning brought forth a noble chance and every chance brought forth a noble knight. Isn't that a great line? Every morning brought a noble chance to do something heroic to protect your people. And then in that moment, every chance brought a noble knight who was willing to stand up and do the right thing against a fearsome foe. I have myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made as they are being made, we shall prove ourselves once again able to defend the island home, to ride out the storm of war and to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary, for years, if necessary, alone. At any rate, that's what we're going to try to do. That is the resolve of His Majesty's government, every man of them. This is the will of Parliament and the nation, The British Empire and the French Republic, linked together in their cause and in their need, will defend to the death their native soil, abiding each other, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag and we shall not fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, The new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. And Churchill was not uh, hesitant to talk about how dark the hour was or how darkening and dimming it was becoming. The situation was stark, but neither was he willing to capitulate for a moment or to even consider yielding. They were going to remain true. They were going to be courageous. They were willing to suffer persecution. They were going to endure. And if they would do that for an earthly kingdom, how much should we for a heavenly kingdom? Especially when our Lord has conquered all. And our hope is that He is here with us even to the ends of the age. And at the end of that age, He's coming. And He will establish peace and righteousness on earth. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. All those formal things we put away and we will live in the presence of a God who is loved forever and forever. So that's our hope. And in the meanwhile, let's be faithful. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the model of our Lord who not merely preached this but lived it. <clears throat> because just three days after this, he was going to allow himself to be arrested, allow himself to be mocked and beaten and scourged, and then allow himself to be crucified, would die, but then rose victorious. And now as our risen Lord gives us these commands to persevere, to be faithful, to not be alarmed, but to be vigilant. So Lord, would you grant us the grace to do this until the day that he comes, and may he come back quickly, Maranatha. And we ask this in his name. Amen.